May the word of God enrich me with his truth from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through his power. Lord God, as we attend to your word this morning, may it strengthen us and equip us. But then as we go into the world strengthened and equipped, may it be evident that it is through you and your word that we triumph. Amen. Do you please sit? And would you like to find uh, Luke chapter 19, uh, page 1054? Just sort of keep your finger in there for a moment or two. In the war, Second World War, there was a fire watcher on duty one evening called Eric. Can't remember his surname. Uh, And Eric, in the early hours of the morning, saw uh, a great barrage balloon that had come loose uh, drift across Colchester. There was anxiety as to what it might hit, so a couple of uh, RAF uh, fighters went up just to uh, check all was well. Eventually it hit some power lines and exploded, and bits of it fell on the far side of the town. Uh, The fire watcher in due course after the war became interested in uh, what happens to wartime stories and investigated the story of this small event within the course of the war. He checked and discovered that within hours of the event, um, uh, the story was that the the fighters had actually machine-gunned the barrage balloon. He knew they hadn't. Um, The story was that it had landed on one side of Colchester when it had actually landed on the other. And actually, within hours again, uh, people were turning up in village pubs with bits of the barrage balloon in their hand that they could not possibly have found because it was actually actually in a completely different part of the county that it had come down. But rumour goes around, especially in wartime. Some of you lived through the war. Perhaps you knew some of that power of rumour. And if that were true for this country, then how much more for those countries under occupation? And Palestine, in the time of Jesus, is under occupation. Everyone knew that these were the days that had been predicted from the time of the prophet Daniel. There was rumour and counter-rumour. The Romans were in charge of the country. Would they be overthrown, or would they persist? Well, Jesus is on a mission that begins, in this part of the story anyway, in chapter 19 and verse 45. It's on page 1054. We begin with him casting out of the temple area, as he comes to it, those uh, money-changing for the sacrifices. Uh, It is written, he says to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Then again, this whole long uh, set of um, talks is held within the temple grounds. He takes them uh, through issues of his authority, He takes them to the story that we may know, the parable of the tenants. You see it there in chapter 20, where uh, 
the um, owner of a vineyard sends a servant who is killed by the tenants. And eventually, he sends his own son, but the uh, tenants kill him too. Jesus is looking forward to that time when he himself will have to lay down his life. Then he goes on uh, to the issue of taxes in uh, verse 20 of chapter 20. With all this stuff about Jesus, why is there suddenly a moment about taxes? Well, because of the rumors. The rumors were that the Romans are going to get overthrown. It is going to get better. Yes, we are under occupation. But pay attention to what you've heard from your cousin down the road. Pay attention to what you've heard from the neighbor who has a second cousin 15 miles away. And you will discover that there is material that tells us that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the, the good times are coming. The yoke of slavery, oppression is going to be lifted and the Romans are going to be overthrown. But the story of the taxes amongst other things, says the Romans are not going to be overthrown. You are going to have to carry on paying your taxes. If you really want to know about money, turn over the page and go to uh, chapter 21 in the beginning, as the widow offers her small mite, as it's gone down in history as being. She offers a very small amount of money, but it's all she's got, and Jesus commends her for it. But back to the story within the the temple, uh, that's just a, uh, one of the later ones. Um, some of those that we think of as the bad guys. First, the Sadducees uh, come to him, and he answers with a question, uh, with an answer that's phrased in terms of this age and the age to come. But then he criticizes the scribes, the teachers of the law. He's criticized the Sadducees, he's criticized the scribes, but he commends this poor widow. And then we get into the passage from which our passage comes. At verse uh, 7, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 21, through to uh, the end of chapter chapter 21, we get this long speech about the end of time. And it's all there. Everything he says in this passage too is there because of the rumor that was going around saying, it's going to get better. God will ensure that a better time is coming. God again will ensure that his temple has its proper glory within the city of the mighty Jerusalem and the Romans will be cleared out. They didn't call it a rumor, of course. It was a very serious prophetic interpretation that was going on. But it functioned as rumor. And what Jesus is doing throughout these chapters is saying no. That is a false hope. It is not going to get better. The Romans are going to be with you until the end, so keep paying your taxes. The temple is going to be destroyed. The son of the owner of the vineyard is going to be killed. So how can the owner allow the tenancy to continue? That's the power of what he's saying. He knows that his end approaches. And if his end approaches, how can God allow the alternative to remain, of a temple worship which constituted a kind of abomination because of the way it was run. The end really is coming. And when we get to verse 25, at which point we started this morning, he is using cartoon language. 
language that would have been perfectly clear to those brought up on biblical prophecy. There's heavenly signs and heavenly bodies being shaken. They all knew that what that meant was God is acting. God has risen up after hundreds of years of apparent quiet and rest, and God is going to act. There, was, there is a description here of the, the natural chaos of the roaring and tossing of the sea. Well, the Jewish people at this time and for most of their history hated the sea. They, they wrote about the inland waters, and everything they write about the inland waters is good and positive, but for them the sea was a force of chaos. And if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll read the sea is always a force of chaos until you come to those prophecies that speak of a sea of glass because God has exercised his authority over it. The waters being stilled is always a sign of chaos being controlled by the power of God. God is releasing the chaos of the world then as the waves roar and toss. And then, verse 27 At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Son of Man, the favorite title of Jesus for himself. But what matters here is that it is the title for the one in Daniel, chapter 9, who comes to receive glory and power and authority. The human being whom God invests with that glory and power in order then to go and be the judge of all. What Jesus is saying, there is going to be no interval in this process. It is not going to be, here are the Romans, and that will get better, and then God will act. No, Jesus is saying, it's only going to get better when God acts to bring it to an end. You are hoping and gossiping and rumoring your way to the hope of an escape. A period that, oh, it's okay in Jerusalem and the temple before God returns. The temple will not escape. Jerusalem will not escape. You will not escape. And when these things happen, that's when your redemption is drawing near, not before. Don't pass on rumors about this or that minor happening. I'm telling you, just like you can tell the season from the fig tree, you'll know when the final things are on the horizon. There was a prayer walk uh, yesterday morning uh, around the northeast corner of the parish, and I was struck at one point to see um, magnolia buds uh, because they come out so they, they appear so early. They'll sit there as buds through the winter. When I saw those buds, I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that can only be one kind of tree. It's a magnolia. Because that buds now, they'll sit through the winter, and spring will come. And very early on, magnolia blossoms will arrive. You can tell the season from the trees. And you will know when the final things are on the horizon. You will know that the kingdom of God is near. This is cartoon language. So if you have not uh, seen the roaring and and tossing of the sea in recent weeks, if you've only seen uh, floods in the west of the country and thought, oh, 
yes, the climate is changing. Is that a sign of God? Uh, I, I don't know. It's cartoon language. I don't think for a moment we are being invited uh, to see the, uh, the fact of a, a, a flood in the West Country as being this sort of thing. It may be that our abuse of the climate leads to consequences that we should be, pay attention to. But that kind of one-for-one equivalence, I don't think Jesus is talking about, because it's cartoon language. And where I want to go this morning, principally, is to the last five verses of our reading, 32 to 36. Because this may be where confusion sets in in our own world. I tell you the truth, verse 32, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, we know what a generation is, about 30 years. Um, 30 years after Jesus, was everything still there? Pretty much, more or less. Um, They disappeared pretty quickly afterwards in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But uh, we're still here, so Jesus was wrong. That's what we may say. Well, let me take you to a a different gospel, uh, um, one you probably know quite well. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. doesn't mean the globe, means all the people in the world who right now are living contrary to God's purposes. God so loved that grouping of those who live contrary to his purposes that he sent his son. In John, the world means the people who kind of organize themselves, whose habit runs contrary to God's purposes. And Luke picks up on a usage of Jesus in his gospel in which this generation means exactly the same thing. Not the world uh, as Luke uses it, but this generation means this generation that is organizing itself, it would seem, to run contrary to the purposes of God. So when Jesus in verse 32 says, I tell you, this generation will not pass away, what he's saying is things are not going to get better. This generation that remains opposed to God and his purpose and his people, that generation is going to remain in place until all these things have happened. You will not escape. It is not going to get better. Heaven and earth, he says, will pass away. But my words about this are absolutely certain. This is not rumor. It's not counter-rumor. This is the one reliable interpretation. And then, of course, actually in AD 70, the Romans did destroy the temple and Jerusalem. In the light of which, be careful. Verse 34. Be ready. Well, he can only say that He can only say that if the signs he's described are not so outstandingly clear as we may have thought. Because after all, we might say in the light of the material about signs, I'm going to carry on living my life the way I've always lived it, thank you very much. But I do acknowledge that I may have a few problems down the line. And when I see the roaring and the tossing of the waves, when I see the heavenly bodies being shaken, then I will shape up. Then I will organize my life. 
because the signs will be there. God is being very nice to me. He's letting me live the, the life I want to live, but then he's going to show me the signs, and it, then I'll shape up. It'll be fine. But he doesn't say that. You only have to have this sense of a trap closing, verse 34, if actually it's going to be unexpected. And that's true whenever Scripture deals with the end. There's a mix of predictability. Look at the signs. And unpredictability, it will come like a trap. He tells us, in the light of the unpredictability, that we're to pray for ourselves to have strength so that these events will catch us treating them as redemption. Behold, your redemption draws near. As we stand before the Son of Man, not as disaster so that we are trapped. And then finally, I want to focus on what it means to be careful. Or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. This generation in Jesus' time was hoping to escape. They thought it might get better. They thought, we have the promise of God that the temple and Jerusalem are going to be fine. And Jesus says, no, 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 the temple is going to get knocked down, but the temple is then going to be raised. And as uh, is recorded in Scripture, they did not know that he spoke of his body. The promises about temple and Jerusalem will be raised, but rephrased in terms of Jesus and his people. And in this generation of Jesus, they thought they would escape. Perhaps like those in their 20s, I guess in every age, who never give death a thought. They had a serious external version of escape. God is going to intervene to save the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus here, in verse 34, is warning against the internal versions of escape. And these seem to me to translate map very clearly onto our own age. Not the external versions of escape, whereby we hope that someone, God, will intervene but the internal versions of escape, so that we don't face responsibility. Is it a coincidence that as our culture has lost the knowledge of God, we've also seen a rise in the possibility of avoiding seriousness? It's already 20 years ago, I think, since Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death because he looked at the way technology was driving our society and realized the possibilities of entertainment were such now that we could spend all our days obliterated by entertainment. Some Christian ministers, I'm probably among them, are rightly exercised about the effect of internet porn. But it is itself part of a wider movement in which we do not need to act responsibly. Indeed, we cultivate irresponsibility. And I'm going to take a bit of a risk now, based entirely on my own pastoral experience. Well, not entirely. I'm going to take a risk and address the men, but don't sit back, back, ladies, your time is coming. I'm not in a position to wag a finger about irresponsibility. 
I spent a good part of yesterday firing paintballs at good friends. But isn't it true that there is actually a culture of male irresponsibility at the moment? Probably always has been, but it's just rather obvious. We watch Top Gear to dream of cars that we won't own. We look at porn to dream of satisfaction that we won't have. We go to paintball to work out aggression that we shouldn't have in the first place. But more importantly, it is open to us to take responsibility for our workplace and to leave every other responsibility to our wives or families. Children, largely our wives' responsibility. Who turns up to parents' evenings? Mostly the women. Church, most certainly that's the wives' responsibility. We will come, but she'd better organize it. Social life, definitely wives' responsibility. We take responsibility at work. And at outside work, our responsibility is for being irresponsible in fun stuff. Of course, it's not true in every case. But it seems increasingly that that's how it's organized. And church does suffer from that. Use Advent. Use any season you like, frankly to face these somber words of Jesus about irresponsibility and be careful. And if men are, as I tend to find, often lacking in responsibility, I would have to say that I notice problems in women from over-responsibility. Getting anxious, the anxieties of life, Jesus says, getting anxious when we forget who is actually in charge. We need to be very careful, very careful, because this is a point it's not intended to hurt. Let's take a parallel case. Things happen in our lives and we get sad. We might get depressed. But there's a difference, about from, there's a difference between depression with a small d and depression with a capital D that means you're clinically depressed and your doctor needs to see you. And in the same way, anxiety can function. There is the possibility of serious medical issues around anxiety. And I don't want to overload anyone with uh, issues or feelings concerning that. But I do mention only, therefore, that I see time and again those, mostly female, with a tendency to be over-responsible, perhaps because their men have left them with more responsibility than they should have trying to take responsibility for everything and everyone in their environment. Use Advent to be a little less responsible. Both of them are wrong, but they're just at different extremes. Dissipation, as Jesus uh, calls it, is simply not having the right sense of what you are responsible for. God is in charge. That's part of what Jesus is saying. So what are we properly responsible for? Well, go back a little earlier into chapter 21 and you will see what is it we're supposed to do with this time. Go to uh, verse 13. Jesus is reassuring those to whom he's speaking that they are going to be witnesses to kings and governors and all. Make up your mind not to worry how you'll defend yourself, for I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will resist. 
we're to use this time for proclamation, for witness. What's the state of yours this Advent? We're to use this time for prayer. Verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Men, are you as concerned to proclaim Jesus, to find ways of proclaiming Jesus, to put up with being laughed at? Persecution is there for being in Jesus. As, as ready and as concerned for all that as you are with your toys. Women, are you willing to take your worries and turn them into prayers? It's Advent. It is a somber moment and a solemn season. Take stock. Coming to church on the first Sunday of Advent is only a very small part of what it's about. This is not preparation for Christmas. This is preparation of what Christmas for, for what Christmas means, that Jesus is Lord and he's coming back. And let's be ready. Let's pray. And take a moment of silence. I'm always very conscious when, when it comes to saying anything specific. It is vital to sift that. There are some who will be feeling needlessly guilty now. Take a moment to lose that guilt. There are some who weren't paying enough attention. Take a moment to think again. Lord God, our redemption is nearer now than it was yesterday, nearer now than it was last year, nearer now than it was in that last season of our life that most concerns us. Give us grace today and always to live so that we may be able to stand before the Son of Man being careful and being prayerful until the glory of Jesus shines upon his world again. Amen.